Amen. Thank you so much, worship team, Dan. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 13 again on this first day of 2024, first Sunday. I'm going to look one more time at this chapter, great chapter, and see how Paul concludes this discussion and see if we can get some encouragement from it in light of all that we've talked about so far. Obviously, last week we talked a lot about the challenging thing it is to really look at this chapter and realize what God calls us to in loving, that it's not an easy thing. In fact, it's impossible to love like this apart from the grace of God. But there's encouragement, especially I think right at the end, that I hope will help us as we think about how to apply this chapter to our lives this year. And so read with me again, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray again. Father, we just thank you again for your word, and we do pray that you would encourage our hearts, help us to see how to pursue love this year in fresh and new ways in all of our relationships. Help us to see how this applies to us in our own uh, families and workplace and neighborhoods and communities And please just bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what Paul does is he begins by basically encouraging the Corinthians because the Corinthian church was a church that was messed up in a lot of different ways. And a lot of their uh, mess was because of how they looked at things and what their goals were. And Paul is trying to reset this church and to remind them that what is really important to God is love. And so the first three verses are about the essential of love, the priority of love, and that regardless of what else is taking place, if love isn't really being pursued, isn't being expressed, then in God's eyes, then what is taking place isn't good. It's not pleasing to him without love being a part of that. And then Paul, in verses 4 and following, begins to talk about what that love 
looks like that he's talking about. It's obviously a godlike love. It's a gracious love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that's very much uh, a walking out of what the Bible calls us to in loving other people. And so he describes what that looks like. And then he talks about the fact that ultimately... That's what heaven is going to be. The perfect is a picture of the life to come. And it's going to be a life of perfect love. And so in a sense, here and now, the mature way to look at life is to say, I'm headed toward a heaven that is perfect love in the presence of a God who is perfect love. And my goal should be to love. That's what I should be about here and now. And the word of God helps me to see what that looks like. Well, he concludes this chapter with verse 13 when he says, But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And one question that comes to mind is, why didn't he just say, of all that you can pursue, of all that there is in life, the greatest thing is love? He says that at the very end, but he adds something to that. He says, faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. And that word abide is actually in the singular. It's almost as if Paul is saying these three things, which are actually one thing, are what will abide. And I think he's giving us a little uh, pointer. The rest of Scripture talks about it in other ways. But he's pointing to the real key to being able to love like this and how to grow in love like this. It is connected to faith and hope. And so when we ask the question, how can you and I grow in love this year? I think verse 13 is a great verse to conclude this chapter on and to think about. But I want to kind of back up a little bit and have us think about how um, love, depending on what kind of love you're talking about, can go bad. And that the love that Paul is talking about here is a love that is meant to help us from allowing other loves to go bad. I thought about the movie Cars 2, where you've got Mater, who's an old beat-up tow truck, that goes to this event, and he, he gets what he thinks is pistachio ice cream, but it's really wasabi, and he eats a bunch of it, and his mouth is on fire, and he says to everybody there, basically, do not eat this pistachio ice cream. It has turned... But the reality is um, there are different kinds of loves in our lives that can turn, in a sense, can go bad. And in order to grow in love this year, we need to think about the reality of how love can go bad and how we can help prevent that love from going bad. And actually, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. Some of you may have read that book. And in that book, he talks about three natural loves. And he talks about how those three natural loves can go bad. Then he talks about the fourth love that is meant to help us prevent those three loves from going bad. The first of these natural loves that he talks about is the love of affection. And he talks about it in the sense of it's like love for your family, your immediate family. But he said it also includes other more familiar people in your life, like your neighbors. Or it might include someone like the checker at the grocery store that you see every week. Someone that tends to be a regular part of your life that's very 
familiar. Uh, the, um, as it's put, the people who happen to be there in my life. And he talks about the fact that this kind of love of affection can go bad in the sense that we begin to have a, a very unhealthy possessiveness about those people, whether it's family or even people beyond our family. And he talks about it in terms of the tyranny of possessiveness. And um, there's a book by Joe Rigney on C.S. Lewis and the Christian life. And he talks about the fact that C.S. Lewis has different characters in different books that kind of flesh out the problem with uh, the love of affection gone bad. And um, Rigney calls uh, C.S. Lewis's discussion of this type of person as the tyrannical mother. But it could be the tyrannical father or any other person who is holding on to particular relationships uh, in an inappropriate way. But in The Four Loves, she's called Mrs. Fidget. In The Great Divorce, she's called Pam. And in the Screwtape Letters, there's a person that's described as the sort of woman who lives for others. You can always tell the others by their hunted expression. And so obviously the idea of living for others is living for others in a sense that it's actually an oppressive kind of living for others. So that this person who's living for others in her life, or he is living for others in his life, whoever it might be, is doing it in a way that is um, kind of a martyrdom kind of way, a grumbling kind of way, uh, with all kinds of expectations on those that they're loving and serving and supposedly laying down their life for. It's described this way by Joe Rigney. This is the dark side of affection. To give, but to give grudgingly. To suffer for others and to make sure that the others know it. To demand, a gra- demand gratitude as a debt. To sacrifice our time for others and then to hold it over their heads. To pout when we don't get our way. To sulk when we feel unappreciated. To prey upon the compassion of our families and dearest friends. To justify our possessiveness and tyranny on the grounds that we are doing our duty for the sake of others. What begins as a good desire to do things for others becomes in the end a craving to do things to others. What begins as a love that meets needs and bears burdens gradually and almost imperceptibly contorts our souls so that we demand to meet needs and bear burdens. We have no sense of ourselves apart from being the need meters and the burden bearers. The point that C.S. Lewis is making is that these natural loves can move from being a good thing to a bad thing. And they move from being a good thing to a bad thing when those loves become idols, become gods, and then they become demons and they become destructive, which is an interesting thing to think about. Uh, that our very love for other people can go bad if it's not properly ruled. And we'll get to that later on. And so the love of affection is one thing he talks about. He also talks about the love of friendship. And he talks about friendship in a particular way. Not everybody defines friendship the same, but C.S. Lewis defines it as two people who find out that they have a common interest or a common love. For something, and that they share a love for something that draws them together and actually, in a sense, pulls them away from other people. 
but which can be a good thing. Not ne- it's not necessarily a bad thing that they are drawn to each other. They're drawn to go together over a common interest or a common love. But he talks about the fact that we have to be careful even of those kinds of things. He uses the illustration of a young man that was sick when he was growing up and he went to see this man, this young man. I don't know how old he was. He might have been just 10 years old or something. But he notices on this guy, this young man's bedside a book called Myths of the Norsemen. And C.S. Lewis says, do you like that? And that other little boy says, do you like that? And they begin reading that book and they get all excited about the same kinds of things in this book. And so he describes that as an illustration of what it means to have what he would define as a friendship. But he says that kind of friendship is such that even if other people don't like myths of the Norsemen and think it's silly or stupid to like that kind of thing or to be excited about that kind of thing, friends don't care. They enjoy what they enjoy and they enjoy it together. But he says it can go bad when there becomes a kind of corporate pride over that. And it can become exclusive where you don't you go from being excited about what you share and what you love together to looking down on other people who don't share that. And you're you actually become exclusive wanting to protect that little group and not wanting other people to actually be a part of it. And that's what we mean by the word click many times, that kind of thing. And so he will talk about it in terms of the lust for the inner ring and how it's very common among people for us to desire to be on the inside and not on the outside of certain rings. I've actually noticed this in the church. I've noticed how uh, certain people at times will have people in the church that they relate to and that reach out to them, but they're dissatisfied because they're not in a particular ring of people. They're not in a particular group of people. And so they're dissatisfied with what relationships they have because they're not a part of another group of people. And that's what he's talking about is that not just inside the church, but even outside the church, it's very natural for us to want to be on the inside of certain groups or certain rings and that that lust can go bad uh, because it becomes uh, exclusive and actually can become a form of worldliness. It's described this way, again, by Joe Rigney. C.S. Lewis links the lust for the inner ring with worldliness. The man will begin to conform to the assumptions and views of this new ring. He will be silent when he ought to speak and laugh when he ought to be silent. He will imagine that he is being the salt of the earth at precisely the moment that he is losing his savor. He will believe that he is being the light of the world just as he is placing his lamp under the basket of worldliness. What's the point he's making? That because of a desire to be a part of a particular group and not being rejected by that group, we begin to compromise. We begin to do things we wouldn't do. We begin to stop saying things we would normally say because we want so much to be a part of that group. The third kind of natural love that he talks about is the love of eros, which is related to sexual love, but it's primarily romantic love. It's the idea of being in love, and uh, he talks about it in terms of 
what typically starts a relationship that moves toward marriage is that kind of excitement over the the other person in which we are willing to bear any burden, pay any price, suffer any humiliation for them, and that kind of thing. And Eros, he would say, tends to make all kinds of promises it can never keep. He says it takes a different kind of love to keep the promise of marriage. It's not the falling in love kind of uh, love that keeps marriages going. It's actually the, the fourth love that he eventually talks about. But he says, we idolize romantic love and justify all manner of evil in its name. The phrase, love made us do it, becomes, he says, not just an, an appeal to extenuating circumstances, but an appeal to authority. And that's exactly where we are today in our culture. That love has become the authority. It's the authority for me to do whatever I feel like I want to do or need to do. And therefore, it justifies all kinds of relationships and all kinds of actions by people. It, love made me do it, so to speak. And he says, Eros, thus exalted as a god, becomes a demon. And as a demon becomes destructive. Lovers in the grip of corrupted Eros become increasingly jealous, exacting, and resentful. So I'm spending a lot of time on this just to say that what Paul is talking about here is, in 1 Corinthians 13, he's not saying that there wasn't any kind of love going on in the church at Corinth. He was just saying it was being corrupted by the fact that the fourth love that C.S. Lewis talks about, the love of God, wasn't ruling and reigning over these other loves. And so I think this fits in really well with what Scott was sharing earlier, and hopefully you'll see how the connection is made. But let me go on to just to highlight some things about, so if we're trying to make sure that our loves, various loves in our lives, are actually properly handled and under control, um, how should we approach that? How should we seek to be more loving this year? And I think the first application of 1 Corinthians 13 is to recognize that Paul is basically telling the Corinthians, you need to make sure that this kind of love is your goal. That in every relationship that you're pursuing the love of God, in every single relationship, because he'll go on in verse 1 of chapter 14, after verse 13, obviously, in the last chapter, and say, pursue love. So he's calling them to make that their number one pursuit the pursuit of love, to make it your goal. And so the question we have to ask in every relationship is, is really loving that person like God tells me to love them really my goal in this relationship? Or is it wanting them to love me the way I want them to love me? Is it wanting you know, something out of this relationship um, that makes me comfortable and makes me feel good or affirms me in some way? Or am I really pursuing love as God calls me to in this relationship? That's where we have to start. Secondly, I think we do, in light of verse 13, ask the question, do I, am I excuse me, making the connection between faith and hope and love? If you read various theologians like Jonathan Edwards or Matthew Henry or others, they will talk about the fact that... Um, Oftentimes in the scriptures, you've got these three things, faith, hope, and love, talked about all together, 
are talked about in various combinations. And they will call them the three principal graces of the Christian life. And Calvin would go so far as to say that faith, hope, and love are the object of the entire ministry of the word. In other words, that's what we're pursuing when we preach the word, teach the word, worship together, fellowship together. We're wanting to increase faith and hope and love. That's what we're after. And so the question is, how do these things relate? And Jonathan Edwards would say they're like a chain. They're linked together. And if one of them is missing, it all falls apart. Faith and hope and love are all meant to be together. And yet he says, Paul says, the greatest of these is love. Which the way I understand that is, that's the ultimate goal. Love is the ultimate goal, but faith and hope are essential to that love. And so hopefully as we walk through this, you'll see uh, how that might can be applied for us. But Calvin and others will talk about faith being the mother of hope, that love is an effect of faith, that um, hope promotes love. So it's all uh, a part of how we're to pursue love is through faith and through hope. And faith is related to the truth of God's word. Do I believe the truth of God's word or not? And at the heart of that is the gospel of Jesus. Hope is about whether or not I'm trusting the promises, which is a part of God's word, but it's a little more um, concentrated on the issue of the future. And we've talked about the promises of God this morning. And hope is very much about that which hasn't happened yet. But the issue of it's a kind of faith that focuses on what God promises me for the future. And so there's the faith and the truth of what God says is true and what he's done for us in Christ. And then there's the hope of trusting his promises for the future. And both of those things are to enable us and free us and help us to love in the ways that Paul is talking about here. But there's an important thing to realize that if you read Jonathan Edwards on 1 Corinthians 13, he emphasizes the fact that love is actually the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit in us is the love that we're pursuing. And so really the way you pursue love isn't simply by some abstract pursuit of faith and hope, but it's actually the pursuit of the God who is love. It's really a very God-oriented pursuit. And this takes me back to what Scott was saying and what others have said, is that in pursuing love for people, we have to pursue the God who is love. And that's why one of the points here is we're called to focus on God and fight sin. It's not just about asking the question, how can I be more loving? It's about asking the question, is my life focused on God? Am I pursuing God, the God who is love? And then, in light of that, am I fighting sin that hinders my fellowship with God? In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So what is Paul saying there? It's as I see the glory of God, as I see the glory of the God who is love, I am transformed more and more. I become more loving. So that 
um, there's a guy who um, did a commentary on Edwards uh, sermons on first Corinthians 13. And he basically summarized what Edwards was saying by saying Edwards is arguing that the key to growing in love is not just pursuing love as a virtue, but it's in pursuing a relationship with God, pursuing deeper fellowship with God, pursuing the God who is love. And so that's what really we're being called to do. We're not being called to some abstract, you know, let's figure out the rules I need to follow to love and just try to do that. It's really a call to pursue the God who is love in fellowship with him. And in the process, to put to death the sin that hinders my loving God and loving and fellowshipping with him. That's why in Romans 8, it says, If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are sons of God. Again, Romans 8 is talking about the fact that the Spirit leads us by leading us to put to death sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of love. The way Edwards talked about the Holy Spirit, he would argue that the Holy Spirit is the personification of the love between the Father and the Son, which is an amazing thing, that the Holy Spirit is the personification of the love of of God the Father and God the Son, and that the Holy Spirit is in us to lead us to love. But he does that uh, by... At least a major part of that is leading us to put to death sin. Because sin is a hindrance to our fellowship with God and our loving. And so if we're talking about focusing on God and fighting sin, practically what does that mean? I'm basically going to encourage you to do things you've been encouraged to do your whole Christian life. There's no secret here. It's just something that we all have to be reminded of all the time, the importance of it. And the first thing is... To listen to God. If you had an hour audience with God, what would you expect him to say to you? Say you're going to go into a room and the Lord Jesus wants to be sitting in a a chair right there. What would you expect him to say to you? Well, I would argue that if you expect him to say something different than this, you would be wrong. That in this life, this is how God has chosen to speak to us. And that when I give God an audience, so to speak, to listen to him, I do it not by, like some Christians are getting into contemplative prayer, where you just kind of empty your mind and you just kind of, you know, try to do things that, get you into your subconscious that is totally bad that opens you up to all kinds of bad things what we're supposed to do is we're to like one psalm 119 says we're to realize that this is how god speaks to me and that to have an audience with god is for me to open my bible and to hear him speak to me and to believe that this word is is applicable to everything I'm going through in my life, that it's not irrelevant, but it's truly how God speaks to us. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 13, uh, it says, If you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments which I am commanding you today. 
So what was Moses saying to the Israelites? When he said, if you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, he wasn't saying, listen for some voice in your head. He was saying, if you listen to this word that I am speaking to you, that he wrote down for them. If you will listen to this written word, you will listen to the voice of God. And the same kind of thing is happening, I think, in Romans 12, when Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Another place Paul says we have the mind of Christ. Our minds need to be transformed by the mind of Christ. Where do we find the mind of Christ? We don't find it out in the woods just clearing our, our minds. We find the mind of Christ by opening our Bibles. And it's as we do that that our minds are, are renewed. And that's why Jesus could say, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so it's faith in the truth of God's word that actually renews our minds. And so listening to God is something we should pray that God would help us to do because the world, the flesh, and the devil do not want you to listen to God, which means the world, the flesh, and the devil do not want you to read your Bible and really think about it, to think deeply about it, and to take time to really ask, how does this apply to my marriage or how does this apply to how I deal with my kids or how does this apply with what's going on at work Uh, that's the last thing the enemy of our souls wants us to do but another thing that the enemy of our souls doesn't want us to do is to talk one is simply to listen the other is to talk because that's how relationships are take place right if I have a relationship with Carrie I listen to Carrie and I talk to Carrie well, it's the same way in our relationship with God. We talk to God too. If you had an audience with God for one hour, what do you think you would say to God? What would you say? Well, I hope it would be whatever you're saying to God right now in your prayer life. It should be what you're already saying to God. Um, it says in Psalm 5, 2. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Prayer is us talking to God and saying, God, help me uh, in all the ways I need to be helped, whether it's trusting him, loving, or whatever it might be. It's interesting, Psalm 119 is all about the word of God, but throughout that chapter, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, throughout that chapter there are prayers that God would help him believe what he's reading and apply it to his life. And so in Psalm 119.33 it says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread for your ordinances are good. 
Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. So basically, if the word of God is what needs to renew our minds so that we can trust what God says and be more loving, then I need to also pray about what I'm reading and say, God, truly teach me what I just read. Give me understanding of what I just read. Make me walk in the path of what I just read. Uh, Turn away from my eyes from that which is contrary to what I just read. Revive me. Stir me up. I'm dead. I'm indifferent. I'm reading and I don't I don't I'm not even moved by what I'm reading. Revive me. Make it alive to me. Um, Establish your word to your servant, meaning uh, work this out in my life. Help me to see how this is true in my life and in my relationships. And so basically, the psalmist is praying about what he's reading about and saying, God, make this real and alive in my life. So we need to listen to God because he has all kinds of things to tell us that are different than what we think. And we need to pray that we would really see it and believe it. And therefore, through that, become more loving in our relationships. Because that fellowship with God, again, we're talking about the the fact that the real key to growing in love is seeking the God who is the God of love. By listening to him through his word, by talking to him and asking him to do in us what we see in the scriptures and what we need him to do in our relationships. But all of that is practically an issue of combating sin. The Holy Spirit, who is love, is going to lead us as we read and as we pray to deal with the sin in our lives. And that sin, I think, can be helpfully thought about in terms of lies and lusts and lawlessness. And so the fight, we we seek to fellowship with God by listening and talking. We seek to fight based on that fellowship by combating, first of all, lies. If faith is faith in the truth, my problem, part of my problem is that I'm believing lies. And so if there, think about somebody in your life that you're having trouble loving. I guarantee you there are lies that you are believing that are hindering you from loving that person. There are lies that are a hindrance to you loving that person better. Loving that person more. We, we will never love perfectly. But we can love better. We can love more. We can grow in love. Even toward those who are the hardest people to love. In our lives. And so if we're failing to love. We have to ask ourselves. What lie am I believing? About this person or about this relationship. About my interaction with this person. That is hindering me. In John 8. Jesus is talking about the devil and he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He's talking to the religious leaders. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There is no truth in in the devil. He is constantly trying to deceive us through lies And so we can expect that the world, the flesh, and the devil are in various ways feeding us half-truths 
and lies that are seeking to undermine our love for other people. It says in Romans 1, verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so I have to ask myself, if I'm having trouble loving in a particular situation, how have I exchanged the truth of God for a lie? How am I walking out or living in light of a lie rather than in light of the truth? There's an illustration that C.S. Lewis uses in the Screws Tape letters where uh, Screw Tape, who's a demon, is talking to a younger demon, Wormwood, and he's teaching him how to uh, tempt people. And he says, uh, We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, and my country, to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. So what is he saying here? We want people to believe the lie that they own those people. So that there becomes this tyranny of ownership where we want to control them. We want to make sure they're fulfilling our needs. We want to make sure they're serving us like we want them to serve us. They become ours. Just like my boots, we can think of our, my wife or my husband or my child in such a way that we actually are believing lies about that relationship because we're putting expectations on that relationship that are totally wrong. And therefore, we need to be set free through the truth that no, um, I don't own that person. They may be my wife or my child or my friend or whatever, but I don't own them. And I can't place those kinds of expectations on them. And so there are all kinds of ways, very subtle ways, that we can believe lies that cause us to relate to people in unloving ways. I mean, C.S. Lewis would say the love actually turns into a kind of complicated hatred when we begin to believe lies rather than the truth about our relationships. So we need to combat those lies to the truth of the word of God. Faith in the truth. Secondly, we need to combat lust or idolatrous lust. And so another thing can, to consider, and this is just kind of another aspect of the whole picture, is if I'm failing to love or having a hard time loving someone, I need to ask the question, are there certain desires that I have for this, this relationship that have become an idol? They're a little God. They're such that I have to have this kind of relationship with this person, or I have to have this person do certain things for me, or I have to um, feel a certain way in this relationship. It has become not simply a desire, but a demand. I have to have it. In Psalm 52, verse 7, it says, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. The picture there is, 
God is not my refuge. My refuge is in something else or in someone else. In this case, riches. And therefore, the desire has become an evil desire. There's nothing wrong with money. But if I make it my God, there is something wrong with it. It's the same way with any particular person in my life. There's nothing wrong with having a wife or husband or child. But if I make them an idol where I have to have certain things from them, they have to serve me in certain ways, they have to appreciate me in certain ways, or I can't be happy, then I idolize them and I actually move from loving them to a form of hatred of them. And we have to be careful of that. And I think that's what James is talking about in James 4 when he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What he's talking about there is even in our prayer life, we can pray that God will give us certain things, but we can pray in such a way that we're really praying that God would strengthen our idol so that our idol will be what we want it to be rather than looking to God for what we need. C.S. Lewis talks about um, the sin of eros when two people are, are in a romantic relationship and he says, the pair can say to one another in an almost sacrificial spirit, it is for love's sake that I have neglected my parents, left my children, cheated my partner, failed my friend at his greatest need. These reasons in love's law have passed for good. The votaries may even come to feel a particular merit in such sacrifices. What costlier offering can be laid on love's altar than one's conscience? He's talking about the fact that we can justify anything if we say, I'm doing this because I love you. When really, I'm doing this because I lust for you. I have to have you. I don't believe I can be happy without you. Therefore, I'm willing to betray God and everyone else to have what I have to have. And obviously, we go from really loving them to not loving them at all. And we need to combat our lusts where we have to have something besides God. Then thirdly, we combat lawlessness. If I'm failing to love, I have to ask the question, are the things that I'm saying and doing that are not in accordance with what the Bible tells me to say and do? Because lawlessness is basically a rejection of the Bible. It's a rejection of the law of God. It's a rejection of whatever God tells me is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And lawlessness is the fruit of believing lies and having idolatrous lusts. Why do people do things that are wrong, even when they know they're wrong? Because they've come to believe lies or we've come to hold on to something so tightly that we can't imagine life without it. And so we're willing to violate the word of God and do the very thing that God tells us not to do. That's why it says in Romans 6, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. 
For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. In 1 John, John says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So what I'm saying is, what I believe to be true is going to either lead me toward lawlessness or away from it. Whatever I'm putting my hope in for my happiness is either going to lead me toward lawlessness or away from it. And so faith and hope are going to ultimately shape my life and determine whether or not I'm really loving. Because love, practically, is actually doing what the Bible says to do. That's exactly what it says in First uh, Romans 13. There's an interesting uh, passage in um, an article that C.S. Lewis wrote on the inner ring. And he talks about the dynamic of how people go from what he would call a good person to a bad person. And he talks about how uh, many people will begin to get into this group of people that they really like and they really want to be a part of. And at some point, uh, they'll find out that the group isn't always on the up and up in how they do what they do. Whether it's a group of doctors or a group of lawyers or, you know, whoever, whoever it might be. He says that at some point, many times, um, they're not going to come right out and, and challenge you to do something that is just blatantly illegal and wrong but they will begin to talk about how, you know, other people do things this way, but we do it this way. And the reality is, um, you get the impression, he would say, that if you're going to be a part of this group, then you have to embrace the way we do things. And other people outside a group don't understand that. They don't really maybe agree with that. But, you know, we really think this is the way it ought to be done. And so he talks about the fact that at that moment, you're basically challenged with, are you going to do what this group wants you to do in order to stay in the group or not? Are you willing to basically, he says, do something that's not in accordance with the technical rules of fair play? He says, um, if you're drawn in to do what they tell you to do next week will be something a little further from the rules and next year something further still but all in the jolliest friendliest spirit it may end in a crash a scandal and penal servitude you might end up going to jail or it may end in millions of peerage and giving the prizes at your old school you might actually succeed but he says either way you will be a scoundrel And so he starts off by talking about how you can go from being a, quote, good guy to a scoundrel in very subtle ways because you want to be a part of a certain group. And so he's talking about the temptation to basically set aside what we know is right, set aside what we know God says is right in order to achieve whatever it is we want to achieve, whether it's to be a part of a particular group or to achieve financial success in some way, we begin to compromise. And that's the very thing we need to combat 
combat the temptation to do things that are contrary to the word of God if we're going to love as God calls us to love. Well, let me wrap this up. I think it's always important to recognize that when we talk about um, focusing on our relationship with God and fighting sin as we've been talking about, the Bible tells us very clearly that we don't do that by ourselves. We don't do it alone. We're supposed to be a part of a church. We're supposed to be a part of a group of people that are doing that together. And so I'd encourage you to ask the question, do you believe what happens here on Sunday morning is truly important? Or is it something that you can take or leave? Or do you really believe it's vital to your growing in love for God and in love for others? If so, then you'll try to be prepared when you get here. Try not to be too tired. Try not to be distracted. You'll try to be engaged when you come. And you'll, you'll pray that God would help you to receive the word and receive encouragement and, and that you'll come to actually give encouragement when you're here, that you'll see what happens on Sunday as something that's vital to your growing in love and other people growing in love. That we're not just going through the motions here. That this is eternally significant because God has designed it that way. Hebrews talks about that when it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it still is still called today. Later on in that same uh, book, it says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And so our gathering each week is an important part of our encouraging each other to focus on God, fight sin, and pursue love in all of our relationships. Then the last thing is don't give up. It's amazing how often in the Psalms that it talks about waiting on God. And when it talks about waiting on God, it's not talking about just sitting around twiddling your thumbs. It's talking about continuing to do what you know God has called you to do and waiting on Him to do the work in you that needs to be done. Waiting on God to do the work in other people that you long to see done. And so it tells us in Psalm 27, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the, of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take, take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. In Luke 8, it talks about the good soil that receives the word and bears fruit with perseverance. Don't get discouraged if it's hard in certain relationships. Keep pursuing love in all of those relationships. Well, if I had more time, I could get into this a little more. But basically, I need to conclude with this. Because the point that C.S. Lewis is making in his book, and I think it's the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 13, is that God has basically said there is one love to rule all other loves. Whether it's the love of affection or the love of friendship or the love of eros or whatever love you might be thinking of, there's only one love that can enable us to love appropriately in those other areas. And that love is the love of God. It's the love that's reflected in 1 Corinthians 13. And so 
the reality is I have to come to the point of asking the question, what is most important to me? C.S. Lewis would say the real question is, which, when the alternative comes, do you serve or choose or put first? To which claim does your will in the last resort yield? When you think about um, your family relationships, think about your friendships, think about your romantic relationships, ultimately what is going to um, guide and rule those relationships? Will it be a love for God that says, I want to please God above my family. I want to please God above my friends. I want to please God above this person I'm in a romantic relationship with because I will never love them appropriately unless I put God first, unless I seek to please God most. I will not love my children. I will not love my spouse. I will not love anyone if I make them my God, if I make them first in my life, I will not be more loving, I'll be less loving. And so the only way we can truly love in these relationships is to make sure that we are, in a sense, pleased with God above all things and living to please God above all things. And we actually pray that that would be true of us. The Lord's Prayer uh, starts off by saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? May your name be loved and worshipped and praised above all other names. In my heart and in other people's hearts. Then it goes on to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which means, help me Lord to do your will. Help others to do your will. So that I... Pray that God would help me to be pleased with him above all other relationships and that I would live to please him in all of my relationships. And then, by his grace, I will be more loving. If that's really what I'm praying, if that's really what I'm pursuing, that my focus is on him. Let's pray. Father, we just pray this new year that you would help us to truly pursue love. And that we would think about it in light of what it really takes to love in the ways that you call us to love. And that there is one love that is to rule them all. To rule all other loves in our lives. And that is love for you and your kind of love. And so we pray, Lord, that you would grant us grace to think about it this way, to pray about it this way, to pursue love this year in this way, in greater, deeper, richer ways. We thank you for your love for us. We will never love perfectly like you do, but we can grow. And we pray that we would, for your glory, for our own joy in you, and for the good of others around us. We bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're trusting the Lord Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, we'd like to invite you to join us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. If not, we'd be excited to share with you how you can trust him and know him as your Lord and your Savior.